Well, I'm starting a series that's going to go all summer. But the good news is it'll be going from different places in the Bible. I actually did this series. I mean, it won't be the same one, but the same theme uh, 14 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. We went through and looked at the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Now, I know a lot of us don't spend a lot of time maybe in the Old Testament. And we say things about the Old Testament like, well, it's hard to understand. It's kind of boring. It's not relevant. There's nothing exciting in there. Boy, that's the, you're not reading the right Old Testament, if that's what you see. I think when you see what we, we were going to look at with the, what are called the minor prophets. And by the way, they're called minor prophets. And then we have major prophets. Which one would you want to be? It has nothing to do with importance. It has nothing to do with the importance of their message. They're called minor prophets because back in the time when they wrote on scrolls, they could get the entire minor prophets on one scroll. So they called them the minor prophets. Their message is every bit as powerful, every bit as important as anything the major prophets could ever say. So we're going to start in Hosea. And there's a number of ways you could do this, but just to keep it simple, we're just going to go in order. It's not chronological order, but we're just going to go in order. So every week you're going to know what what you can be looking at, reading about, and studying for the next week. So we're going to be starting with Hosea. And I think we ended up with a, a, a title called A Tragic But Happy Love Story. Now that was like my third choice. I, 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 the first one was not probably politically correct. or I mean, It was going to be a preacher marries a prostitute. <laughs> More people that tuned in, I bet, if I'd have went with that. A preacher marries a prostitute. Man. Can you imagine the headlines? Oh, goodness. Where in the world and why in the world would a preacher marry a prostitute? Why in the world would God have it in his holy word about a man who is called to be a prophet of God and he tells, God tells him, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. Marry this is really politically incorrect, a whore. Marry a prostitute. And she's not going to be faithful to you either. She's not going to love you. She's going to forsake you. She's going to cheat on you. But I want you to marry her. And it's going to get so bad that she's eventually going to be sold on an auction block by the guy she's currently with and I want you to go buy her back. Can you imagine? How many of you want to be prophets and prophetesses? Yeah, it changed your mind, didn't you? Man, thank you, Lord, but not me. I don't want that calling. I don't think that's what I want to have my life being known for. So we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. I'm going to just put up a slide about the Old Testament. Some of you, this is just so old stuff. Some of us, it might be a little bit newer because we don't spend as much time in the Old Testament as we might in the New Testament, assuming we're spending time in the New Testament. But the Old Testament is broken into parts, and they call the first part the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible when you open your Bible, starting with Genesis. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're going through the Law. 
And that kiss, I, I got to admit, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, a few places you can get a little bogged down. But if it's the Word of God, it's still important. Then you come to the historical books. They're called the history books. You're going into Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and then First and Second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. You're going through it. And then you come to what they call the poetic books. Now, when I read the book of Job, I don't consider it very poetic, but... They do, because of the way it's written. It's considered the poetry part of the Bible. The Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And then we come to the prophetic books, the prophets. The major prophets, the ones that are called the major prophets, because they had a much bigger word that the Lord told them to give to Israel or Judah, God's chosen people. There you're familiar probably with Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel. Exciting books, a little hard to understand sometimes because there's such prophetic things in there. But the stories are amazing, absolutely amazing. And then the minor prophets. It starts with Hosea and goes all the way until you get to the New Testament. So we're going to be looking at those. I want to read Hosea chapter 1, just the first couple verses, to see what Hosea heard from the Lord. First thing, it says, The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. You go, what? Okay, who cares, right? So there's a bunch of kings, etc. This is given to us to give us a historical perspective. And we miss these things in the scriptures when we don't have a little bit of a historical perspective. This word that's going to be prophesied, it's like it could be prophesied to America today. It was a time of prosperity until our stock market started to crash, right? It was a time of prosperity. They were, it was a time of wealth. It was a time when, hey, nobody needs God. It was a time when Israel and Judah, especially Israel, the northern kingdom, especially there, under the king, it had been time of unbelievable prosperity. And they didn't exactly throw away God, Jehovah, Father God. But what they did is, they just added a whole bunch of gods to it. Yeah, we're still Christians, but... You know, is there anything wrong with worshiping a tree? Anything wrong with worshiping money? Anything wrong with worshiping entertainment? Anything wrong with... And you just fill in the blank. Well, yeah, we still believe in God. And God's going to tell His people... You're with a prostitute. When we go through this story, keep this in mind. Hosea is a picture of the father, God. His wife-to-be, Gomer, is a picture of where his chosen people were and how they were living. So as we go through this, this is what God... And it gives you an idea when he uses such a strong picture for us of what God thinks of all forms of idolatry of abandoning him, or adding to him. It breaks his heart as our Heavenly Father. Verse 2 says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said, Okay, so here it is. Hosea, I'm calling you to be the prophet. Here's the first job I've got for you. Up to that point, I'd say, all right, Lord, I'm going to be used by God. And then he goes on and he says, this is what the Lord says to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife 
of harlotry and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant idolatry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblem, and she conceived and bore him a son. If there were newspapers in the day, can you imagine the headlines? Preacher, prophet, Mary's prostitute. What would that do immediately to your reputation? What would that do to your credibility? What would that do to the impact you're probably going to not have on the people that you're supposed to be sharing the word of the Lord with? Nothing good would come out of that. And he says, you're going to have children of harlotry. Now, when you read through this, especially the first chapter, we know for sure that the first child, Hosea is the father. That's clear. The next two, not so clear. Theologians disagree on those next two. It very, very easily could have been from two different men as his wife, Gomer, was cheating on him. But whatever it was, God told him up front, you're going to have children of harlotry. And after she cheats on him, sells herself around town, getting older, probably getting uglier, probably diseased, the guy she's with at that time decides she's used up. She's, I'm going to sell her. I'm going to sell her as a slave and see what I can get for her. Remember, Hosea is still married to her. And the Lord says to him, Hosea, there's going to be a, I'm paraphrasing, there's going to be a sale today, and your wife is going to be on the auction block. I want you to go buy her back. I want you to go take her back. After the extreme idolatry, after all that she's done, I want you to go take her back. He buys her for $12.50, half the price of a normal female slave in that day, and a little bit of barley thrown in for good measure. About this time, I'd be saying, Lord, I'd really like to quit hearing from you for a while. First, you tell me to marry her. She'd tell me she's not going to change. And now you tell me I got to take her back. What more can you ask of me? And he knew she was going to be unfaithful from the beginning. God told him this. But he told her, I want you to take her back. Now remember the picture here. God the Father, his people, the prophet, the prostitute. Why would you marry a woman like Gomer? remembering who she represents. This woman would have no moral compass whatsoever. No sense of what was right or wrong. You could never trust her. I want you to propose to this woman she's going to cheat on you. How could you trust your wife? Couldn't be done. Always flirting with other men, trying to get their attention obviously couldn't make a commitment of any kind. Remember, when I'm talking about Gomer, she represents God's people. A woman 
who was going to disappear for days on end and you wouldn't have any idea who she was with and where she was at. Makes a good movie, doesn't it? This is the Old Testament. This is for us to read and learn from. Can you imagine? One of the things that strikes me in my own insecurity is, can you imagine being this guy and the mockery you're being made of by this woman? I mean, as a prophet of God, they didn't want to hear your message anyway. That's one of the reasons God had this drama play out right before the people. They didn't need God. Everything was good. Everything was prosperous. What do we need God for? Before long, we're worshiping all these other things, but we still have God. We're his people. We're, but we're worshiping all this other stuff over here. Idolatry. God's looking at his church, his people. So what's with him marrying her? Why did he do it? Well, that's an easy answer, right? He was obedient. God told him what to do, and he did it. You know, God in the Old Testament sometimes gave words to prophets to speak. Sometimes those words were words of warning, basically saying, hey, if you don't come back to me and get your act together, there's going to be a big problem. There's going to be war. You're going to be taken off, captured in those wars. You're going to live serving other people. Sometimes the words were like that. But sometimes the prophet, the more fortunate ones, would get the words of a loving God. God loves you, trying to woo his church back, woo Israel back into serving him. But sometimes God knows, right? He knew the people weren't going to listen. They had already taken the position. They don't need God. So he unfolds this drama with Hosea and Gomer being the stars of the show. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and sometimes I forget these things, but there's not the first prophet that he asked to do something kind of goofy. You know, when God knew the message wasn't going to be heard, he would ask a prophet. Remember this one at all? Isaiah? The prophet Isaiah, this mighty prophet of God, he was told to take off his clothes. I think he might have kept on his underwear. And he told him, I want you to walk around like this as a picture of the horrors of war. So Isaiah, in obedience, does this. I believe you could see that in chapter 20 of Isaiah. One that even seems crazier to me is Ezekiel. He was asked to lay on his side. To lay on his side, and I believe it was his left side first. He said, I want you to lay on your side, and here's what I want you to eat, and I want you to cook it over animal manure, animal dung. And I want you to do this for about 390 days. And then when the 390 days are over, roll over on your other side and do it for 40 more. Prophets of God. And again, to demonstrate to the people that, hey, if you don't respond and come back to me, this picture is a picture of the suffering and the anguish and the pain that you're going to experience as you're conquered by enemies in accordance with my will as your God, your jealous husband. Amos, 
I was like Damus. He was a farm boy. Didn't have a lot of formal training. I could relate. Amos wasn't too, too, too crazy weird, but his, his thing was to take a plumb line and hold up the plumb line. And it was simply a demonstration to show how far his people had got off of plumb, off of where they were supposed to be with the Lord. God used these things. And then here comes poor Hosea. Eventually, the people would realize or at least this was God's hope, that the people would realize what they're seeing. What they're seeing in this relationship between Hosea and this prostitute, Gomer. To see that the lifestyle she was leading and where it would lead to and the response of Hosea. Ultimately get the message. They wouldn't listen, but they could see and observe. So I'm going to briefly hit three points. Don't you love it when I say briefly? Three points of this drama as it plays out. First is this. God's love is oftentimes unreasonable. Actually, most of the time. It's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. Why would he love this chosen people? Remember this. When God chose the nation of Israel, he knew what was going to happen. He was like Hosea. He knew these people were going to forsake him. He knew they were going to turn away from him. But he chose to love them anyway. Unreasonable, illogical. Why would he do that? Love like this doesn't make sense. The real question in our mind should be, why? not why did Hosea marry marry this, this Gomer, but why did God... Mary choose his people. And remember, we are called the bride of Christ. He chose us. Why did he do that? 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he can't deny himself. He is a faithful God. When God enters into a covenant of love with us, It's not dependent upon our faithfulness. It's dependent on his faithfulness. His love doesn't necessarily make much sense. You know, there's some disagreement in theological circles about what I'm going to say next, but I believe it with all my heart. God loves sinners. Some people might tell you he doesn't love sinners. He can't love sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The world fills sinners. God loved me enough. He loved you enough that while we were still sinners in bondage, nowhere near him, in most cases not even looking for him because we wouldn't look for him except for the grace of God. You know, before you and I are even saved, the grace of God is being released into our lives and the Holy Spirit is already wooing us. He doesn't live inside, but he's wooing us. We would never accept Christ in our own strength. We couldn't do it. It wouldn't even be on our radar. But if the Holy Spirit is moving and wooing us, and he does that. It's written in Romans 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not one. I don't care how good they are. I don't care how good you are, how good I am. We don't deserve it. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. And we always say that. Oh, I think they're really seeking the Lord. They're seeking God. The reality is God's seeking them. 
They don't know it, but they're responding to the Holy Spirit before they're even saved. All have sinned and turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. But God loves us anyway. And just like the picture of Gomer and Hosea, God had to buy us back. But not with silver and gold. Not with barley. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He had to purchase us back. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And when you have received from God, whom you have received from God, you're not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, the totality of who you are. God's love isn't logical. Second one, sometimes God practices tough love. Sometimes we present him as this warm, fuzzy God all the time who wants nothing but easy living for us. He is good, and he's always good, but sometimes being a good God, like being a good parent, requires tough love. When we look at this, um, Hosea never made excuses for what Gomer was doing. We see nothing like that in the book of Hosea. Nothing. The pain would have been real. I can't even imagine his pain. If that were me, try to put yourself in that. What would it have felt like? What would it have been like? And then I'm reminded that Hosea is a picture of our Heavenly Father. What must it feel like when His church decides to prostitute itself? Gomer's love had been totally betrayed. Or excuse me, Hosea's love had been betrayed. And Gomer just insisted on continuing to be faithful, unfaithful. And what did he do? He just let her go. Just let her go. Tough love, knowing what the consequences were going to be. He didn't stop loving her and let her go, knowing what will happen. God, the Father with his chosen people, he knew they were going to be unfaithful. He gave them plenty of opportunities, plenty of warnings, blessed them unbelievably. But he knew they were going to be unfaithful. He let them go, knowing there would be consequences. Sometimes, God just lets us go. He's not going to restrain us when we choose that path of sin. He doesn't want us to go there. He doesn't stop loving us when we go there. But he'll let us go. And then we pay the price, the consequences. And the good news is, he's always waiting for us to turn around and come back with arms wide open. In Hosea chapter 2, like first in verse uh, 7 of chapter 8, just a short phrase, Hosea saw the wind and reaped the whirlwind. That was his, not advice, his warning. You know what? She's going to go. She's going to go and sow the wind, but boy, is she going to reap the whirlwind. Boy, my church Israel is going to go sow the wind, but boy, they're going to reap the whirlwind. Those things still hold true today. In Hosea chapter 2, God describes through Hosea what he's going to do to his unfaithful people. And he's making reference to Gomer. He says, Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will water her 
I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. I'm going to let her go. Oh, but it's going to be easy. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for I was better off then than now. If we choose our own way, he's going to let us go. We won't like it. Tough love. Third thing about it, and the last one, thank goodness God's love is unconditional. Unconditional. The picture we see here, this, this tragic story has a wonderful ending. It just takes a while for us to get there. God's love is unconditional. You know, as human beings, well, let me just speak for myself. There are times I just shake my head and I walk away from a certain thing or person and shake and I said, they're beyond hope. You almost want to write them off. Give up on them. Thank goodness God is not like that. That was his point of emphasis with Gomer. You know, look what she did. Look how far away she went from her husband. Look what Israel did. They chose the prosperity of the world over a holy and righteous God who loved them, cared for them, blessed them, wanted nothing but the best for them, loved them unconditionally. In Hebrews 3, verse 1, it says, excuse me, Hosea 3, verse 1, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another as an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, things they would offer to idols. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Gomer's sin had worn her out. She was realizing the choices she'd made. And Hosea does this unthinkable thing. He follows the Lord's counsel and goes and buys her back. Psalms 139 verse 7 says this, Where can I go from you? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Our answer should be, Who in the world would want to run from God? Who would want to flee from his presence? It's a repetitive cycle that happens over and over. We see it in the picture of Israel. God gave us a clear vision of it in this story or this drama between Hosea and Gomer. And it happens over and over and over. Why would anybody want to run? The reality is this. You can run a long ways, but you can never run away from God's love. You know, no matter what's happened, no matter where you're at, no matter how hopeless your situation, how worthless you might feel, no matter what your circumstances, and you start to run away from God and the things that you believed were true, but for whatever reason now, they're wavering, you're waning, and you just go ahead and run, but you're not going to outrun His love. Ever. Ever. He is a God who loves us unconditionally. He wants you and me, and he sees us as the bride of his son, Christ, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. There's a scripture I'm going to read in closing in Titus chapter 3. We see in scripture, 
talks about the kindness of Lord. the Lord will draw us back to him. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kingdom, or when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, is, has appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. When you read that scripture, it should jump out at you that you can do nothing to earn it. And no matter where you find yourself, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and for whatever reason you're believing some kind of lie that you're not good enough, you're not worthy, that's all a lie. The love of God is trying to woo you to accept Him as your personal Lord and Savior. All of our sins. He took back Israel time after time after time. He made Hosea take back Gomer. And it's a picture for us, no matter where we are, no matter where we are, If we've never accepted him as Lord and Savior, it's available to you today. If we're wandered away down that path somewhere because of whatever taken place in our life, and you're starting to hear that voice say, it's too late for you. You've rejected all that you knew to be true. That's a lie. The Father, through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is saying, just turn around. I'm right here. I want to embrace you in my love and restore you. For the unsaved, it's simple. You're recognized as a sinner, you need a Savior. And the Son of God, Jesus, died on a cross for your sins. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. And eventually he ascended to the Father. So we too see and have the certain hope that as believers, whenever our days are over here on this earth, and we take our last breath, our spirit is immediately in the presence of God. And one day, all of us will experience that unless he comes back soon. We can rejoice that we will be where our loved ones are that know Christ as their Savior. Certain hope, certain joy. In the midst of whatever we're going through, those things are true. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much that there was obedient servants like Hosea that we can read about and learn from. Father, that we would not be like Israel, that we would not be like Gomer, but we would be a loyal and a faithful people. God, that the realization of what it cost you to purchase us back from sin, sacrificing Jesus, would fill us to such an overwhelming thankfulness we could imagine going nowhere else. Lord, I thank you for the promises we have, spending eternity with you, worshiping with the angels, bringing glory and honor to you for all eternity. But Lord, while we're here on this earth, we continue to cry out to you, needing your Holy Spirit, 
needing your Holy Spirit living in us to, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to teach us, and to comfort us. As we walk this path as sojourners, visitors, aliens on this earth until we eventually come home and received into your presence. Lord, I thank you and pray today, this Memorial Day, as we go about all of the things that are taking, going to take place with graduations, family gatherings, picnics. Lord, we pray that your presence it goes with us. We thank you and pray that you would bless those who have lost loved ones recently as we remember those from our past relationships, families, and friends. We thank you, Father, for the men and women who have given their lives that we might live free in this nation. Let us never take it for granted. So bless us, Lord, as we go, that we might be a blessing and bring glory and honor to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.